Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I'm going to concentrate so hard to look into the camera, but I'm going to fail. I'm happy to have Marina Tran Vu, the founder and CEO, the CEO of Equo, join us. Marina, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's been a crazy day, but thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. What makes a day crazy, though? Um, you know what? Dealing with everything from like going out and doing interviews like this one. I had a radio interview this morning to dealing with personnel, HR issues that plague, I think, pretty much every single startup or every single company, especially yeah. nowadays. So there, there's a lot of that. <laughs> so talk to me about this radio interview. I'm really curious. Is this a, a radio station in Vietnam or is it like a regional radio station? Like what is it? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's um, a radio station in Vietnam. Um, they're actually like the largest one here. Um, and they invited me on there to do a radio interview um, targeted towards Gen Z. They're trying to build up that uh, Gen Z um, younger demographic um, in terms of a radio audience. And so they invited okay. me. But I spoke it all in English and I had my um, trusty translator next to me. So this is what I wanted to ask you. Are you a Vietnamese speaker as well? I am. I am. So I'm like born and raised in Canada, Vietnamese Canadian, but I came over to Vietnam about three years ago. So my Vietnamese is not super fluent. I learned it when I was younger, but um, I didn't start relearning a lot of it and using it a lot until now. So did you grow up in a household where Vietnamese was spoken? Yes, absolutely. Um, actually, my parents, um, they spoke a lot of Vietnamese and especially when we were getting yelled at, me and my sister, then they spoke <laughs> like very, very Vietnamese language. <laughs> But yeah, no, actually growing up, we grew up in the Vancouver East Side, which wasn't the nicest neighborhood um, at the okay. time. Um, and there was a very sort of multicultural community there. And so everyone okay. spoke every type of language. Um, but my parents, for the purposes of their business and living in Canada, they learned, they used Vietnamese, but they also spoke a lot of English. So they kept that up. Whereas my sister and I, when we went to school, all they taught was English. So we just kind of learned to use English primarily versus Vietnamese. It's really interesting that did your parents send you to Vietnamese school? Do you know what I mean? To, to learn the language? Yeah, no. I mean, I know a lot of parents definitely do that. Unfortunately, uh, my parents could not afford that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were kind of, uh, I wouldn't say the typical, but we, we were definitely similar to a lot of um, people who had immigrated over to Canada. My parents were extremely, extremely poor yeah. at the time, so we could barely afford to do anything. So we spent a lot of time um, actually learning to help my mom with her business. <laughs> What kind of business was your mom in? Uh, so she started her own tax preparation accounting business. I love it. And so when we were young, like literally at the age of like five or six, we were doing some simple stuff like, you know, stamping and like, you know, stapling and photocopying and running <laughs> over. And as we got older, we started doing printing and doing some, you know, um, tax preparation filing um, wherever we could, you know. What What is the tax system like in Canada? I have no idea. In other words, in the U.S., tax prep is such a gigantic business because the tax system is so confusing, right? It's almost purposely so. Is yeah. it the same thing in Canada or is it just is it a lot easier? Oh, no, it's absolutely confusing. But um, I think one of the things where my parents were able to kind of thrive is like at the time, like before they started their business, my dad had studied computer engineering and my mom had studied accounting. And, you know, um, at, at that time, you know, back in the 1980s, like you were filling out all these tax forms by hand. Yeah. And that will literally, you know, break your wrist, break every bone in your hand because it's, it takes so long. They have to do the calculations, make sure they're correct. So what my parents did um, was they actually kind of created, I would say, the first like uh, a tax accounting software and no. basically uh, was able to kind of do that very quickly. So it would take, you know, an hour or two hours to fill 
in terms of tax return and calculate, my mom was able to do in like 10 minutes. So your dad, did you, I presume because your dad was a computer scientist and your mother yeah. was the accountant, did your dad like sit with your mom and go, okay, what are the rules and stuff like that? And then write a program to do this? You're kidding Exactly, me. exactly. Like basic, um, like at that time they used basic, not C++, not all of this, like, you know, fancy Python or whatever. Yeah, my dad programmed <laughs> <in> basic. <laughs> and he hooked it up the computers to a printer. And it's one of those printers where you feed in the paper. And luckily you just feed in the tax form and he was able to program um, where you print on each line, line by line, and then also the calculations. So they're automated. So all we had to do was just take, you know, all the all the forms that you get, like, you know, saying this is how much you got paid for your salary or whatever, and input the numbers, and boom, you got a tax return done. So did you, so I, you know, this is a really funny question, but did your mom and dad at the beginning when your dad wrote this program and your mom told them all the rules, right, did they tell everybody that they'd automated it? Or did, were they just like, oh my God, this is so hard, you know, like that $7,000, whatever it is, you know what I mean? No, they didn't. They didn't tell everyone about it. It's just my dad is very much so about efficiency, you know. Yeah. He's like, he like he's an engineer. He's like, ah, oh, there's got to be a better way to do this sort of stuff. So he was all about that, you know. Um, and he actually turned that down like a six-figure um, accounting job, which would have been huge. Which would have been huge. I'm uh, you know? sorry, he um, turned down a six-figure programming job. Yeah. Would have been huge for us at the time because we were literally just living in poverty at that time. Um, he turned that down to help my mom start her business, and then. Um, you know, after it became successful and well known, and like you know, we started making money and able to move ourselves out. Um, you know, a couple big tax giants. I'm not going to name them, but a couple big tax preparation giants who have their own software now. You know, came knocking at the door and tried to offer my parents, you know, some money for the software, which right. they said no. <laughs> which they said no. I have this theory that I call the fallacy of now, hmm. and it, you know, it goes something like this, that when people meet you today, they presume that you've always been the way you are. And for those of us that grew up in poverty, and I'll put myself in that category, there's a presumption when people meet you, right, because you're well-spoken and you're well-educated and you're successful and you're happy, that they feel like there's no way you could have grown up in poverty. So when you tell them, they're taken aback. Do you, do you understand that fallacy? Do you know what I mean? Where like people meet you today and you know, like you're in another country and you seem all well adjusted and stuff like that. But do you feel like there's part of you that people don't understand because they don't know what it was like back then? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of, I, I think some of the ethos around how I live my life and how my sister does too. Tell me. Um, a lot of people didn't realize that we learned how to work from a very young age. And I'm not yeah. saying like 13, I'm saying like literally at five or six, you right. know? We were learning to work at a, at a very young age. We were learning to um, care about money a lot because, you know, we, we could barely afford McDonald's, you know. Yeah. We lived in a cockroach and rat infested apartment for years of which, you know, half of it was my mom's office because she couldn't afford to rent an office, you know. Right. Um, and half of it was like, you know, our home. And we would wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning, take a shower before she opens up the office. Just we had to get ready, you know. And prior to that, we were living in the back of a store you know so on a mattress that we all shared and so people don't know about that about like you know my life or anyone else's life but they see now it's like oh you know you're living in such a privileged life you know right. you have issues that are that no one would ever even say is an issue because it's a first world issue but they right. don't know what we've gone through you know so <clears throat> i love this kind of story right and i was i'm li i'm in singapore now and a few a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago, I was with a partner of mine and we were walking around and I specifically took him to a place where I had stayed the last time that I was in Singapore. Mm 
I'm staying in a hotel now. It's not super fancy, but I'm not uncomfortable, right? We were joking before about like, if you saw the setup, you'd laugh because it's kind of like rigged and things are hanging everywhere. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But I think that you can't forget where you came from. And particularly as it pertains to the startup world, everybody, you know, one of my friends on LinkedIn actually posted something today. It's like how a startup works. And it says, um, read something, have an idea, get funded, be successful. And it's never like that. And it's just like a line that's straight up into the left. And the reality is it's a lot messier, but I think that life as well is a lot messier. And I think it's really important for people to understand that an entrepreneur like you are, again, today looks like entitled, mm-hmm. but it's a big mistake. And I, one of the reasons why I took this guy down Hong Kong Street was because there was a, um, what's it called, a hostel where I had stayed. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, see up there on the third floor, the last time I was here, I stayed there. And it was $16 a night. And it was all the coffee you could drink and all the cookies mm-hmm. you could eat. Actually, it was all the peanut butter sandwiches you could eat. And he was like, why are you showing me, th- showing me this? And I said to him, I think it's important for people to understand that like, what you are and what you have is not what you always were. And that this mm-hmm. idea of building something from scratch is really hard, but that you can't forget even if you have a modicum of success, like when you moved out of that apartment or out of the back part of that store, you moved into a nicer house because it sounds like your parents at some level became successful or more successful at least than when you were younger. There's this strange feeling, right, of like, I can't forget the cockroaches. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Uh, It is. I I mean, to this day, it sounds weird, but I have a massive fear of, um, you know, bugs or insects or anything with more than five legs. (laughs) Starfish have five legs, so, but um, yeah, I have a massive fear of them. And people are like, "Oh, why are you so scared of bugs?" But they don't really know. You know, I mean, I'm not going to always go again to that story, but they don't no. know that right. you know we had cockroaches in our food, in our microwave, in our like you know in our bedroom. You know, um, so that was something that you know I, I I I carry with me, and it's also kind of a weird thing too. Like a lot of times, people are like, you know, um, why do you always finish your food? And I always tell people like, hey, like you know, don't. Don't waste any food. Take it home or whatever else. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have, you know, all the food in the world um, when I was growing up either. You know, I could have been a lot taller. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had all the food in the world, but uh, you know, I didn't. So um, you carry those things with you, and I think, so. uh, I think it does kind of affect your outlook too. It's the same sort of thing as like you know, people say it's a privilege to leave your six-figure corporate job to start up a, a company. And I'm like, no, it's not a privilege. It's a a choice, you know, and it's a choice I made, but it's a choice I made knowing full well, like how hard it is too. I mean, did I know how it was this hard? No, but I knew it was hard, you know, so I made that choice. So tell me now that you've made that choice. Actually, actually, this is really interesting to me too. So I used to do this show called Globe Change and Globe Change was a show that talked to college students, like first year college students, about what the transition was like going from high school to college. And one of the kids there, her parents sound similar to your parents, right? So they emigrated from Vietnam, yeah, in the early 80s. And, you know, they escaped essentially, right? And she wanted, and when she was doing her internship, because this university, the UT Austin actually has a great internship program, they send people overseas. And she actually chose to go to Ho Chi Minh and her parents were like really mad. (laughs) They were like, we didn't come all the way over here and bring you to Texas. So you could all go all the way back. And she was like, I want to learn and I'm interested in my home country and stuff like that. And I'm curious, like what your parents thought when you said I'm going to Vietnam to work. Um, Well, the first thing is that um, they actually welcomed it because um, we were in a little bit of a different circumstance. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I was, um, I didn't actually voluntarily go to Vietnam. Oh. Yeah, no, I was actually kind of, I did it for my family. Uh, unfortunately, my father got diagnosed with uh, late stage cancer. I'm sorry. Um, but he's doing better now, you know, he's doing a lot better now, which is great. But, you know, at the time it was like turning your entire world upside down. Yep. Um, and, you know, some people don't understand it. Some people don't, still don't understand it to this day. You know, a lot of my friends were like, why are you moving? Right. Yeah. You're not going to tell the whole sob story, but the reality was like, you know, we didn't know how long he was going to live. He had some stuff over here that, um, you know, I, I needed to come here to help take care of because he was so sick that he literally could not fly, okay. you know? Um, and so that's why I made the decision to just kind of drop everything and, and come over. And, uh, that decision wasn't taken lightly. It wasn't like done in like, no, a month or so. It was done over a couple months where I started to see like, Hey, I'm not focusing at work. I, I don't like the fact that, you know, I can't spend like as much time as possible at that time with my family. There was no such thing as remote work, you know, um, at the time, like in literally, literally in 2018, it was like remote work. What are you talking about? Right, yeah, you're fired. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, I thought like, you know, I care about my family a lot and I need to do what I can to help them. And so, um, I came to Vietnam, literally no friends, um, you know, staying with an aunt who, didn't really like me to be honest with you. <laughs> I can tell. Um, and I came here to try to um, help my dad for a little bit. So when I first came here, I think everyone thought the same thing. Um, or a lot of people told my my parents the same thing, which is they didn't think I would last a month um, in Vietnam. So actually, when I went to visit Vietnam previously, I think um, I really didn't like it. You know, it was so different. You know, it wasn't like now. It was like literally the airport when you got out. It was full dirt road and you know, the barrier between like, you know, people welcoming um, the pastors that are coming off the plane um, was literally just a, uh, like a thin yellow rope. I remember that because right. I was like, that's not going to keep anyone back, <laughs> you know. But you were also a kid. I mean, you were so much younger, no? Exactly. I was a kid. I had nothing else to do. Um, there were no traffic lights at the time. And now there are, you know, like yeah. there was a lot of development in a, in a very short time period for Vietnam. So when I finally came back, you know, I was like, okay, it's very, very different from what I remember. And I had to learn everything from scratch. So um, that's what, you know, most people thought. They, they thought I wouldn't last, um, you know, a month. Even the people who met me here thought that I would be the first one to kind of leave, you know. And I was like, ha, I kind of showed all of you. <laughs> Is What was your previous job? You said you left a job to go there. What was your previous job? Yeah, so uh, prior to, like, kind of coming to Vietnam, I was actually working in brand and marketing for a few companies. Um, like Unilever, Bacardi, LG, and then my last one before I came to Vietnam was Spin Master, a toy company, actually. Okay. Wow, what a change. So what was the impetus to start Equos? Like, what does it do? What was the impetus there? And for all the people that never thought you'd last, like, <laughs> yeah. We know what to say well, to them anyway, yeah, but go I mean, ahead. Yeah, well, first off, uh, Equo itself is a sustainable brand that provides 100% plastic-free and compostable uh, products. Um, we started off with a line of drinking straws made out of materials like grass, rice, coconut, sugarcane, coffee, and then we expand into utensils, plates, and things like that, also made from the same materials. Um, and the reason why I started it, um, or at least the inspiration was, you know, when I first came here and I had no friends, you know, I spent all my time in cafes, you know, like, you know, hoping that maybe I'll meet some people or at least I'll like do some reading, catching up on that. Right. right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, what are you, you going to do when you're in a new city? You don't know anyone. You just go to whatever, wherever possible. And so I went to a lot of cafes um, and I saw one time in this cafe, it's actually in a cafe called Louisine in um, 
Vietnam, funny enough, it's a French name. Uh, but they had this like green thing in the drink and I was like, what is this? It's kind of weird, you know? And, and so that's why for me, like, I was like, okay, I need to discover a little bit more about this. And like, again, I had nothing but time on my hand. Right. And so I was like, why not research the heck out of this? And I researched it more, realized, you know, products like this have been actually existing for decades in countries like Vietnam, but it just hasn't been commercialized or brought to the rest of the world. Wait, so what so was that? What was that green thing? It was a grass straw. Ah. And, yeah. And was it meant so to it was be? Um, was it meant to be like a sustainable product, or was it just something that that cafe had? Made? Do you know what I mean? Or. Yeah. So actually, the history behind it is uh, that you know farmers um, who used to work in kind of fields and cutting down, uh, you know, plants and and whatnot. Um, sometimes they would take a break and they would drink a coconut and they would have to find something to be able to drink that that's you know, what, drink. That's why so they cut down that piece of grass, which turned out to be hollow. And so that's really what kind of started the whole like grass straw. <laughs> right. So it wasn't the fact that they were trying to be sustainable. It was just made out of necessity. And then at least at the beginning, right. And then there you were, I mean, obviously over time it changed, but then there you were going, Hey, how can we mass, how can we make this into a mass product? I'm presuming, no. Absolutely. And so that's really kind of where um, like the inspiration came from, to be honest with you. It was, it was just like, we, we need to kind of commercialize this and, and bring this out because it's been around for a while. And then some people did commercialize it, but they commercialized it um, kind of very locally in Vietnam. Right. And I thought, you know, this is, it, it was a waste to not to be able to try to bring this product to the rest of the world. And so that's really kind of where I, I started pushing. When you were researching the hell out of this thing, right? Were you surprised at the implications of the sort of ESG and sustainability world? In other words, was it a world in which you involved beforehand or was this just something where you like started doing the research and you thought, oh no, I didn't know this existed. Do you know what I mean? It, it was that. I was completely, I will be honest, I was completely like not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> I like I'm not going to try to pretend, you know, like, like I, I was completely not sustainable, but I was like, no, like, just like every sort of like learning curve, yeah. um, like, you know, you start to get interested yeah. in something, you realize, hey, like this is an issue. I should try to start to be a little bit more um, sustainable, a little bit less wasteful. So I want to try to do a little action. And I started, as I started to learn more about this, you know, I was like, okay, this is something that, you know, could really um, be not only a great business opportunity, but it could have um, a lot of effect in terms of bringing Vietnam and Vietnam products to the world. And then on top of that, just doing some good for the planet too, because at the same time, my nephew was born and I was like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden my life priorities changed and I want to try to do something good for him too. So that's really kind of what triggered a lot of that. But isn't this the perfect example? I mean, I didn't even ask you this, but you just said it. It wasn't just for the sustainability aspect of it, but it was a business opportunity that you thought could be profitable, that you thought mm -hmm. could get exposed to the rest of the world and be even bigger. And it was also still helping. And I think... You know, I was having a conversation with somebody about this earlier, but tell me where I'm wrong here. It's one of these things I feel like if you don't experience it yourself, it's hard to explain. And you said now that your nephew was being born, maybe you looked and was like, oh no, if the oceans rise three inches, like his life is just going to be a living hell. And if I can do a little bit, which turns into a lot, I should do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like prior to that, uh, again, like I didn't know anything about ESGs. I didn't and like to be fair i didn't know anything about the startup world i didn't know what equity was or shares or like raising money was i, I had no idea so when people were telling me these are part of esg goals i had to like you know search it up too <laughs> it, it was 
it was literally like I was learning the entire process. I was learning about sustainability. And then I was also kind of finding my purpose, like, you know, and like my, my reason of, or my why for my business as well at the same time. So how long is, how long has Equal been around? Uh, it has been around now, thankfully, for two and a half years. <laughs> and I think it's been a hard journey. And we started it like, you know, during the pandemic, which was probably not the smartest idea. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think historically, and, you know, one of the benefits of being 57 is that you get to see a bunch of different cycles, right? And historically, starting a business either during a recession or during some kind of difficult period of time is, al is almost always the best time to start because, first of all, everybody else is panicking so they're not focusing on business. But second of all, you only have upside, right? In other words, it couldn't get any worse than it is. And yeah. we used to say, we used to say in the stock market that like a good idea in a bad market, it's just a bad idea. But a good idea in a great market, it's a great idea. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. if you're there when the market starts to turn, your okay idea is now a killer idea because everybody else was so busy just trying to preserve and you're so busy trying to build. Does that make sense? And if you build during a hard time, when the market's better, it's easier. It's not easy. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, um, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So, like, when I look back on it, yeah, you know, like, I, I resonate with that message a lot. Um, I would just say, like, you know, um, I, again, just being very honest, I did not do it on purpose. I did not. And was going to happen, you know? Like, I started in February 2020. We heard some rumblings about, you know, some, like, something going around. Yeah. And we're like, okay, yeah, like, you know, it's going to be over in the next month and the right. next month and boom, it like, you know, global shutdown and then people are locked down forever and they don't see each other for two years. Yeah. Like I, I did not predict that. I, I did not start it in the middle thinking that it was an opportunity. I just started it. <laughs> you know? What, um, what have you learned about the startup world? Do you know what I mean? Like for someone who knew nothing about ESG, knew nothing about sustainability, learn, I mean, obviously you're smart, right? You go into um, easy, <laughs> easy, but you go into the startup world again, which is a, it's its own animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you like? What did you learn about this too? Did you research the hell out of that too, or did you go in a little bit blind? Do you know what I mean? Like, what surprised you? Um, I went in completely blind. I had no idea about the startup world. I only I only started to get exposed to it because you know someone before we even launched our product, um, you know, came to us with a majority acquisition offer before I even launched it. So I was like, okay, how do I deal with this? What do you mean by majority acquisition? Like, what do you want from me? <laughs> like, I'm just making stuff. Leave me alone. Yeah, I was just like, I didn't know what it meant. And then I talked to my friend who was very ingrained in the startup world. His name's Jack. Um, he runs uh, this company called One Class, an amazing, amazing education technology company. But I, I learned very quickly from him. He's like, you know, this is what it's all about. This is a crash course. And he was kind of my guide and my foray into the rest of the world of startups. And I learned about accelerators. I learned about raising money very quickly. And I would say the biggest thing that I learned is that um, raising money doesn't make sense. Um, you know, like raising money and this whole kind of um, ethos around like, hey, the more you raise, the more successful you are or whatnot. But raising money doesn't make sense because valuations inherently don't make sense. And um, everyone has a different type of valuation for a company. And so when you're trying to look for like a calculator on like whether or not a company is successful because they raise a certain amount of money or whether or not they're successful because they're worth a certain amount of money no one will have the right answer because it completely varies right it's like it's like art right people don't know how much it's worth or it's not really worth anything until someone says it's worth something and even then you don't really know how to calculate how much it's because worth. it's all bs did you raise any money or no 
I did. I did. So I was able to raise some money. I recently closed my round of 1.3 million USD. Oh um, raising that money. Yeah, I know. Having someone who literally did not know anything, did not know, you know, who Y Combinator was last year. Like, I think um, I didn't do too bad. But I had some really great um, help, friends, um, you know, advisors, mentors that helped me with that. What was the purpose for raising $1.3 million? Um, to give us a chance, I think. That was the, the biggest thing. Um, you know, I, I think I was very um, ambitious trying to run the business uh, during 2020 yeah. um, or like starting the business during 2020, learned a hard lesson there. Um, thought I was really ambitious trying to sell during 2021. We were able to do some of that, but really 2022 was trying to give us like a real chance at hitting the market and seeing what we could actually do, hopefully in a less restricted environment. So that was the biggest thing is just giving us a chance to do that and seeing if all the hypotheses that I had about um, what we can do and about the sustainability industry um, that were like kind of things that people all 100% believe, my office at Hypothesis, seeing if I can prove it. So that. what was the hypothesis? Um, okay, so there was a few of them, but the first one was that um, you can brand a commodity, um, that people can still care about that. Um, and so that was one thing, like, like I asked people, hey, do you know a fork or a straw brand? Can you name one? Can you name two? And 99.9% .9 of people cannot name one. So, is there a straw? Is there so, a straw brand that I should know? Um, there, there might be, I'm not going to give them free. No, 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 just the answer is it's either yes or no. I'm not asking for the brand, but it's yeah, a good point. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point, right? Like you can name five car companies in your sleep. Like I could literally wake you up from like a, a slumber from 10 years and you'd be like Honda, Mazda, Toyota, like, you know, them all. Yeah. Uh, well, at the time I, I honestly could not. And should we know some straw companies? I Why mean, not? Yeah, we should. Right. Why not? Because we know tissue paper companies, right? We know Kleenex. Yeah. We know Charmin, we know Royale, and those are 100% commodities. And how about you know paper? We know Xerox yeah. paper, right? There's a brand there, so why not do that with other commoditized categories like straws and? So straws. I have to ask you this: like this is a very specific hypothesis. Was this a new mm -hmm. idea you had, or was this an idea that's been gestating in your brain for a long time and thinking this is the best way to test it, or did you see that straw? Oh, you come from a marketing background. This is the thing. So you were sitting there going. How can I apply what I've learned to all the other stuff that I've done for LG and Unilever, mm -hmm. which make branded products that aren't particularly commodities, but soap? I mean, really? Yeah. And mm -hmm. then say, wait a second, no one's done it for straws. So you're probably sitting there going, I'll be the straw brand. And people are like, you're insane. Tell me I'm wrong. No, no. It's like you're reading my mind. That's exactly <laughs> what I did. I, I look my background, you know, and working for all these companies, I realized the power of a yeah. brand. It is the reason why people wear Nike. Yep. Or they like no buy a certain bottled water brand, yeah. or they eat a certain type of noodle, yep. right? Like at the very crux of it, you know, some of the properties of those products are quite similar, you know, or they're quite basic, um, with very small changes here and there. But really, what makes you buy it and buy it over and over again is the brand, what it represents, what it could represent, you know, what you aspire to be. So that's kind of like one of the biggest hypotheses I had about the category. So I want to get into another hypothesis in a second, but I want to understand. What's the branding? Is it meant to be just a sustainable brand? Is it meant to be a luxury brand? Is it meant to be a combination of these things? Super curious. Yeah, so it's meant to be kind of um, a more like sustainable but fun, fun. brand. That's something that we want. Um, and colorful. And I know it doesn't sound very, very unique, 
But if you take a look at the branding within the eco category, it's primarily very natural sort of materials and colors. You got your beige and your green. Lots of hemp. And your aqua to just make sure it all looks like, you know, eco-friendly, yeah, yeah. right? And I was like, you know, but for me, that's a little bit, you know, it's nice, but it's a little boring. I want it to be bright and loud and colorful. So that was something that we wanted to be do that was different. And then on top of that, you know, um, we made everything kind of very fun looking, very abstract looking because we wanted to make sustainability right. fun. And you, you can, you know, you can sit there and tell me sustainability is fun. You know, you should care about it. But that's not really the case. You know, when you tell someone like, hey, you know, every single year that we like continue to do this, we're going to die earlier or, you know, we're all going to have to move to Mars or you're killing like, you know, that turtle when you right. do this. Um, that sort of messaging, I think, fails to resonate anymore. Fair. Like that fear monitoring doesn't doesn't do anymore. So we tried to... Sorry, so you make a really good point too. And again, I was talking to somebody about this this morning. I can scare you into almost anything a few times. But at some point, you just go numb. Like I could even punch somebody a bunch of times. And at some point, they're just going to be like, that doesn't hurt anymore. I don't feel it, right? Yeah. But nobody yeah. wants to stop having fun. It's weird, right? Like, hey, you want to have fun next Saturday? I've had enough fun. It's something no one's really said, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the same sort of things like you know, you can see a t-shirt over and over and over again, right? But if that t-shirt kind of like is in a nice little canister, it's like, oh man, I got a t-shirt in a in a can, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's super cool. That might be a little bit of a different sort of thing. And so that's why I say that, you know, there is a different approach to sustainability, which may not be popular, but, you know, I think that it's it's worth exploring. So that's why it became another hypothesis. So what do you think? Is that hypothesis working? Um, I think it's definitely helping for sure because, you know, people see us, they say they love our branding. Um, you know, they remember that we have a lot of different materials. We still have a lot of work to do on educating on all the different materials and getting people to remember, um, our name, but that's why we also made our, our name super easy to remember and kind of sounded like, people. yeah, I got it. I was just looking at it thinking, why would they pick that? Oh, I got it. Okay. It took me two seconds to figure it out once I thought about it. Interesting. Are there other hypotheses? Yeah, I would say uh, the other one is um, very unpopular, very, very, very unpopular. Um, but it's kind of like this uh, idea of like, you know, we can still do small sort of things and that's still okay. You know, for example, we tell people that, you know, our products are single use. You know, there was a huge focus on reusable everything. Go ahead. The reality is that, you know, sometimes people have, don't want to get convenience. They don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to change their behavior immensely and bring one fork with them everywhere they go, you know, just to be more sustainable. So our products are all used once, throw away, but without the same damage as plastic or paper. They are all 100% compostable. So that was kind of a different sort of thought with, versus the original narrative of like, you know, recycling, which is a huge farce, by the way. <laughs> and then um, and then reusable, uh, which is, is asking a lot of people. Um, and then also the fact that, you know, we ask people like, hey, if you can just use a straw with a plastic cup, that's still okay. You know, you don't have to be a perfect, sustainable person. So that was also another hypothesis that we push out as a message. And I think that's resonating because I think the whole industry. Is did you awesome. feel like that was a little bit risky? Yes. But did you know that? Did you know <laughs> I, that when you were doing it? You know what I mean? Like this idea. Not at all. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna say, yeah, no, not at all. I, I, I did this all like literally. And this sounds a little bit weird, but I did it all by trial and error and based off of my own experience. Like, I'm not an environmental scientist. I'm not a super sustainable person. But what would I want? Uh, you know, to become more sustainable. And so, 
I wanted a product that was easy, didn't ask me to compromise and ask me to carry stuff or wash it. Um, and I wanted something that was a little bit better than doom and gloom messaging, you know, and that's so when you went to VCs, I'm presuming VCs or even just angel investors to fund this, I mean, $1.3 million doesn't come out of thin air, right? Somebody had to believe this. When you first started telling this story to people like, we're not just building a company, we're building a company around sustainability. I didn't really know that much about it. And we're going to do it. It's going to be fun. It's not going to be gloomy and it's going to be super colorful and it's just going to be single. Did you get this look like, again, are you insane? I feel like there's a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll say, um, admittedly, at first, I didn't refine all that kind of thinking until people actually asked me For those sure. questions. Like, they asked me the hard questions, they're like, why did you do this? Why is it like this? You know, and that's when I realized, like, if I dig deeper, I had those answers. And that's the reason why, you know, I just didn't articulate it at that right. time. But um, yeah, when I first went out pitching um, to people, you know, um, a lot of them, I would say at least half of them said, you're crazy. This is stupid. Um, you know, we have tons of straws out there. There's nothing special about what you're doing. Anyone can replicate it because it's a commodity, which is true, right? But um, I also said, hey, well, you know, if they were already doing it, then you would have, you know, the products that are not plastic or paper straws, for example, the straw market, taking up more than 0.1% market share, but it's not. So I think there's an opportunity there. So I love when people tell other people that are building businesses that what you're doing isn't special and that everybody's mm -hmm. already doing it and it's not the right way to make money. Again, if you just go back to <clears throat> years of business experience and cyclicality and all the things that you've seen before, you know, we didn't need another operating system. We didn't need another computer. We didn't need another user interface. We didn't need anything. And yet there it is really, really successful because the differentiation, particularly um, from an investor standpoint, <clears throat> they have no idea what it's like to build a business from scratch. And, you know, you said before, it's all silliness. I, I mean, I agree with you completely. But I think it's super interesting as well that you're right. If it was easy to do it, even if it's just a commodity, there would be blue straws with like rainbows on them already and everybody would be using them. And yet they're not there. So actually what we're doing is different. And frankly, if you can't see the difference, I'm okay. Yeah. And, and I would say a big difference that I learned too in like, you know, um, as I started to talk to these other people and these other companies, you know, people are like, we don't need another dating app. We don't need another, you know, rest, a pizza shop. We don't need another whatever else. Right. But at the same time, like a big thing I learned was execution is everything. It's the only thing. Have, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You know, like if, if you, you can have an idea, right. I'd be like, you know what, I want to do this really amazing pizza shop <laughs> that's Vietnamese flavors. And then, you know, I execute it poorly. Guess what? Like, I'm not going to make the same money as a huge giant, you know, corporation here. There's a big one that's focusing on Vietnamese players here. And they're doing massively right. amazing because uh, it's down to execution. Yeah. I mean, look, we don't need any more coffee shops, but there's a, there are hundreds of different places to get coffee. And to be fair, <clears throat> there's one that I love. So I actually walk past three coffee shops to get to that one. And dating apps, you know, we know, what is it, Fika? Like, Denise didn't need to build that either. And yet, there it is, being successful, raising money. And I'm, I'm sure people said the same thing to her. Like, this is just, this is a commodity. No one mm -hmm. wants to swipe left or who cares? And she's like, this is different. Yeah. yeah. They will say that about anything, and 100%. I can, I, I've heard it so many times about mine. It's like, yeah, you're not doing anything. Special. Does it? It's like, okay. Yeah, but does it give you more mm -hmm. confidence as you, like, I don't know how old you are, and frankly, I don't really care, right? But at some point, no, no, but at some point, right, you hear this, like, that's not going to work, and this isn't going to work, and that's not going to work. And the same people that said to you when you first arrived, like, she won't make it three months here, or one month, or 10 minutes, or whatever, right? 
it's easy for people on the sidelines to say all this stuff, but at some point, you know, you bypass other people's expectations and you continue to go on. And it gets back to this idea that I always have, right? That everyone's an overnight success 10 years later. But the more you push on, does it make you more confident about, you know, I have another idea about this. And instead of doing it like this, we're going to do this thing. Do you feel like everyone's going to be like, no, that's not going to work either. And just be like, sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would say for ideas wise, um, based on my experience, yeah, you know, it does make me a little bit more confident. Um, like just pushing forward with an idea because I saw, I saw myself be able to push right. through all the, you know, all the, the, the nonsense of people saying that, Hey, you're, this is never going to work. But, um, you know, as an entrepreneur uh, like, and especially myself as a first time yeah. founder, it makes it very, very difficult sometimes to have that mentality. Like it, it's a battle. I would say every single day It's like, man, maybe they're right. Like, no, this has gotten super hard, you know, days like today or like you know, a couple months ago, it was so hard that I just didn't know if I could go on. And so it's, it's a little bit of both. Sometimes you're confident, sometimes you're not. Remember we talked earlier about, you know, walking down that street and talking to this guy about, <laughs> don't worry about it. We'll take it out anyway. But remember I told you that story about walking down the street and showing that guy that hostel where I stayed. And he was like, why are we here? And I was like, because I don't want to go back there. Like, I really just don't want to go. I, I think that building something always takes a ton of sacrifice and a lot of pain along the way. But I don't want to go back. Do you ever think about this idea of like, I just don't want to go back to that pain? Do you know what I mean? I do. You don't have to say yes. You can just go, no, I'm out, I'm out of it. But like, for me, it drives me every single day. No, you know what? Like, that for me... I would say like there, you know, there's two types of the pain, right? Where there's pain of like, you know, where yeah. you were, and then there's pain of like all the things that you, you left <clears throat> and you sacrificed for your business, yep. right? Um, and like, I think back to it, and of course, I don't think anybody wants to go through that right. pain again. Um, but if, if we didn't, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today. So, I mean, like I can share a personal story. You know, I left, I left Toronto. I left eight years living there, building my like entire adult yeah. career there building a life there, having what I thought was going to be a life partner yeah. there and all my friends, I left them all. And, um, I didn't do that on sure. purpose, but it has happened, you know, being stuck in Vietnam from the pandemic and everything, it just happened. And am I grateful for that now? I am because, um, you know, I developed into a different yeah. type of person, which I wasn't like this, you know, even three years ago, I wasn't like this. <laughs> but I felt a different type of person. And then I also kind of saw the value of who I wanted in my life and it, you know, um, they said that's like, there's this quote kind of going around everywhere about how, like, you know, you really kind of figure out um, who your friends are um, in terms of like your real friends and then your friends by yeah. convenience. And, you know, I, I realized for a while, you know, there's some friends I still talk to in Toronto and those yeah. are my friends. And then the friends are convenience um, because proximity, yeah. you know? So that really helped me learn a lot about that. And those were like really important life lessons that I feel like I've taken into the business. Yeah, for well. sure. I mean, I remember one of the kids coming back when I was a junior in college, one of the guys who had graduated came back, he took a job on Wall Street and he was like, I'm constantly canceling dinner and weekends away with my friends. And it's an easy and very quick filtering mechanism for the people that really care about you and the people that are there, just like you said, for proximity and convenience. And he goes the funnel drops down to a really small group of people. And at the end of the day, it's really only those five people that matter anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the one thing I kind of um, add on to there too, is like, you know, 
Um, people keep saying this, but I don't think they realize it. But you know, your biggest currency in life is is time, right? And so if you're spending time with the wrong people, with the yeah. people who, you know, yeah. you know, will drop you because you're not in the same postal right. yeah. code, you know, then then there's no point in having <clears throat> them continue to be a part of your life because your life and your time is so valuable. You don't need it wasting. You you don't need to waste on people who who don't value in this. I agree, and I think the earlier you can learn that, the better off you are. Um, what other products are you making? Like, what does the future look like to you? <laughs> you know, no one's going to see that, by the way, but I can't, yeah. I, I could not not laugh. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, we just released our coffee utensils, which is super exciting. Um, you know, they're, they're very flexible. They're made out of coffee grounds. Um, and then we are planning on introducing plates, bowls, uh, takeaway boxes. They're all available for pre-order. Um, and yeah, those are our plans and our plans are to expand it to other countries. So right now we're in the US, Canada and Australia, primarily online, but we're planning to expand into Europe and then uh, we are in Singapore and we're just going to try to blow it up as much as what possible. Is it, what does expansion mean to you though? In other words, it's hard enough to run a business. You know, we joked before about remote working, right? Where you're like remote, you're fired basically mm -hmm. is what it used to be, but it was, right? Like if I'd gone into my boss at Goldman Sachs and said, I love this job. But from now on, I'm going to be working from Bali and I just need like a high speed internet connection. He just would have been like, are you really okay? Right. But now that's not true. But if you're expanding globally, not just regionally, what does it look like to you? And like, what's necessary? You think I'm really curious, like, do you need somebody on the ground in Sweden to build in Sweden or not? You know what? I, I, before I would say no, like, and, bef and by before, I mean like last year I would say no, because you know, there's, pandemic everyone was working remotely by like by just being right. forced to you know but um i think there needs to be a little bit of both you know i think not everything can be yeah. done remotely you have to have on the ground you have to have people in person and sensing things and it's the same sort of um kind of methodology that i i take when i take a look at my business when people evaluate it right. as a startup it's like yes you know people are investing <clears throat> millions of dollars into technology right. startups right but at the end of the day, we live in a yeah. physical world and we still need to have physical products. That's why investing in products like mine might be a good idea. But that's the same thing with remote working and like just getting things done. It's like there's nothing that can really replace that in-person sort of. Um, so will track. you start traveling a lot now? Oh, I've already started. <laughs> Vietnam. Woo. Uh, we opened up our borders and um, yeah, so I, I've already traveled to Singapore to finally see um, two of my like best friends. Um, from university, I, I finally saw them after almost three years, and um, so I did that. And I went to Korea recently, saw my sister who went there. So I finally saw my sister after wow. seven months, and then I'm planning to see my parents um, again after a year. And this is where prior to that, you know, I didn't see them for two yeah. and a half years. I mean, yeah, traveling. I ask because <clears throat> this is my first trip, right? I mean, I'm in Singapore now. I had not left Thailand, obviously, for the whole experience of COVID. And I don't disagree with you. Like I was at a conference last week and there's, and I've been saying this for years anyway, even before COVID where people are talking about robots replacing this, that, and the other thing, and maybe they can, and maybe they will, but I don't think you can get rid of human connectivity, right? Like if you and I were, cause I recorded in person here with a bunch of people, it was unbelievable. I still think this is okay. But if we were sitting in the same room and just like really there, I think it would be just a little bit different. And I don't think there's any separation between or, or any like replacement for just a face-to-face -face meeting. No, there isn't. And you know, there's a different um, yeah. energy 
and there's a different like reaction that you can get from each other. Um, I mean, well, I don't know if that's the case with me because people say I'm, I'm pretty similar online as I am in person, which I hope is a good thing, you know, but, um, you know, I, I know for a lot of people, like their dynamic, their energy changes, you know, when they're really around people, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's a good thing, you know, because you should be feeding off of other people's energies, right? We're all like atoms that are moving around at the end yeah. of the day, right? So yeah um i'm extroverted anyway so any kind of interaction i have with people gives me energy whether it's in person or, or um or remote but anyway look marina i can keep you forever this was a great conversation marina Tranvu, the founder and ceo of equo i got it right i put an s on it i think in the middle and i won't do that again thank you so much for coming and doing this i really appreciate it no problem i was so fun to have this conversation and i would love to be back if you would have me if, if my company's still around in a couple of years i'm oh. sure it will be <laughs>